0: Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr Kate
1: Macrossan, And I'm Dr Kate Steele. And today we're continuing the episode Achey Breaky Ribs, our interview about regional anaesthesia for blunt chest trauma with Dr Anthony Hayde. As always, we represent our own views and
0: not those of our employers or ANSCA. Now Anthony, what are your thoughts on erectospinae blocks?
2: So I don't routinely use erector spinae blocks in my practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think for me, that's because I'm happy with the analgesia I get with my epidurals and my paravertebrals. Yeah, that's fair enough. And I'm comfortable with the safety profile. Mm. And so the only time I would electively use an erector spinae is if I can't do an epidural or a paravertebral. And the most common reason there is coagulopathy. Mm. I'm sure that sometimes when I've done a paravertebral, it's been an inadvertent erector spinae yeah. because if you think about it if you think you've got loss of if you touch the transverse process you think you have loss of resistance and you thread the catheter but it's not mm. that ends up being by definition mm. pretty much an erector spinae mm. block yeah, now cool. where the catheter is is not that important what really matters is when you give your test dose to your patient do they get pain relief mm. and if the catheter is in the right spot i find if you give 5 mils of something dilute for example 0.25 Pivacaine with adrenaline or uh, 0.2% ropivacaine, and then you wait five minutes you should notice a difference.
0: Mm. You don't have to answer this question if you don't want to. Um, and forgive my ignorance because I, I don't do regional anesthesia a lot. Um, but I have heard some talk that because of the location of erector spinae blocks, there may be some benefits in terms of chronic pain syndromes, particularly associated with like breast surgery. Um, do you, like, have you noticed any or are you aware of any sort of benefits that erector spinae would... Um, provide for patients that are in that particular subgroup, so patients that are more likely to have chronic pain syndromes as a result of surgery? Uh,
2: I don't know that there's any really high-quality evidence, but Fair there's enough. a lot of there's a lot of uh, research taking place in this mm. space. Mm. The main benefit for rectospinae, in my mind, is that it is technically less challenging than a paravertebral, yeah, and it may give you analgesia that's either equivalent or only slightly inferior. Okay. So that to me is is the main benefit is can if it if someone was to do a trial to show that erector spinae blocks are as good as paravertebrals mm. the main benefit would be that it's less of a barrier to entry for say beginners and intermediates mm. because it's less of a daunting thing mm. to to do the erector spinae plane block because yeah. it's all completely ultrasound guided it's not blind yeah. and there's certainly a sense that it is less dangerous because you're getting less close to the yeah.
0: lung. I must admit, uh, again with the caveat that I've never actually performed an erector spinae block in my own practice, I think I would be much less stressed as a beginner doing an erector spinae or some sort of fascial plane block as opposed to something like a paravertebral, just because of the perceived safer profile in terms of the the performance of that block. So that's yeah.
2: it is a legitimate point to make, yeah. uh, and uh, and so I guess my my answer to that is particularly people who are, who are coming through their training now and learning, uh, if you have the capacity to do paravertebral blocks on people who already have an ICC in situ you, mm. uh, they're a good they're a good group because if if you are un- first of all pneumothorax and hemothorax is very, very rare. Mm. Uh, and secondly, if it does happen, they've already got the treatment in situ you. Mm. and' I've, uh, I'm not aware of any patients that I've had where I've caused a pneumothorax or a, or a hemothorax. Mm. Uh, with with a paravertebral block, mm. um, there's certainly a lot of research in this space. So what I'm saying now may may change, uh, yeah. and um, and that's always a a, a, um, a challenge keeping up with the literature. Yeah. But uh, but last time I looked, I was not blown away by the evidence for erector Okay, blocks, cool. especially in rib fractures. Okay, cool. Uh, and my own I guess my own bias is that I have used thoracic paravertebrals and thoracic epidurals for several years now, yeah. found that they've benefited patients quite a lot. Yeah. And I have not seen the same high level of analgesia with every single erector spinae block that yeah. I've encountered. That's it's not okay. to say that they don't work. Yeah. It's not to say that uh, that they're useless, but yeah. um, my, my bias is, I guess, against them for those reasons. Yeah,
1: that's understandable. That's fair enough. And i might also counter that they're always easier because I personally find sometimes you have a very limited ultrasound view of the transverse process and then trying to get your needle, particularly in someone lateral in intensive care is the classic kind of place where that happens, trying to get the picture to perfectly line up such that you have your target and you're getting your needle and you can actually see your needle in a dense muscle. It's not always easier. And in fact, sometimes I think it's harder. So that might be a little bit of a...
2: Yeah, the ultrasound, if any ultrasound guided procedure is more complex than a blind procedure Mm. because you have, you don't need a third hand and you don't have goo Mm. everywhere. So, the other thing I wonder about erectospinase is is some of the analgesia just from systemic absorption of the local anaesthetics. Mm. Yeah, uh, that's
0: true. And that's, I, I believe, well, again, forgive my ignorance because this may be established already, is that a lot of the research that's going on at the moment with regards to erectospinase blocks is the sort of the way that we dose them, um, because it is a, an area where there's a lot of systemic absorption, like you say. And obviously, there's that balance between providing enough analgesia, but not... You know, not providing a patient with side effects from excessive absorption of of that analgesia. So yeah. that's that's fair enough.
2: I think it's certainly an area that is worthwhile researching, mm. uh, and um, and and I would I would I would be happy to be uh, proven wrong if some good trial comes out. Then, yeah, of course. Uh, but um, last time I checked, I, I did not see any any fair good right. evidence. But I certainly do do erectospine blocks myself if I cannot do Mm. a paraverbal because of technical difficulties or because of coagulopathy. So it's not like I never do them. They're just third on my list rather than first.
0: Now, Anthony, what are some of the pitfalls of regional anaesthesia for rib fractures?
2: So one of the problems is you're often doing these procedures outside of the operating theatres. You might be doing them in a patient in the emergency department or the ICU. Mm. So you need to be sure that the common and predictable problems that you would normally be able to treat are able to be treated in your outlying environment. Mm. So somewhere between 10 and 15% of our patients get hypotension such that they require fluids and vasopressors. So making sure they have real basic stuff, like they have a drip that's working, Mm. you know where to get the aramine if you need it. Mm. Uh, The reason why they get hypotensive is partly because of uh they're often old patients with antihypertensives. Mm. They're often a trauma patient, so they might be a little bit hypovolemic. You're sitting them up, so the mm. venous pooling, mm. and then you're taking away all their all their pain. Mm. Uh so that's that's the probably the most common out of all of the minor things. Mm. Uh you've also got to be mindful that if you take away all the pain and someone's got a lot of opioids on board, they may just go to sleep or stop yeah. breathing. Yeah. So you always want to make sure that you have the capacity to suction the airway, bag mask ventilate, and give naloxone. Mm. Obviously, you want them to be monitored and uh, mm. And, uh, and if you follow all of those things, you can, you can reduce the risk of those things happening. Mm. Getting your lefts and your rights mixed up is a problem with Mm, all unilateral blocks. Um, so making sure that. The left-sided ribs are actually broken, not the right-sided ribs. Mm. And sometimes patients don't really know if they're a little bit demented. Yeah. So I always have a look at the, the CT scan and, and double-check the side. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, a lot of the time, it's obvious in regional anaesthesia, if someone comes into your induction bay and they've got a big plaster cast on their right ankle, mm. it's it's more likely that we're doing an operation on the right leg than the left. Mm. But for regional anaesthesia where there is no outlying signifier of where the injury is, that's, mm. that's I guess, a risk factor for, for messing that up. Mm. The other thing is if you have a patient who's in hospital they might be on cloxane heparin warfarin and mm-hmm. that can easily be missed if you are not the if you're not the one who's been intimately involved in that patient's care mm. and someone's referred them to you it, it's always worthwhile double checking you know the allergies the the coagulation all the usual things that we that we probably should be doing before we do any of these procedures the the more of these cases I'm involved in the better my judgment becomes mm. so uh there are situations in the past where I've had a patient with blunt chest trauma and I've elected to do a paravertebral. Mm. and then they've had maybe not the greatest analgesia and then in retrospect, I go, gee, I wish I'd done a thoracic mm. epidural for that patient. Mm. Uh, same goes for, I'm sure people have had this situation where they've put an erector spinae in, maybe mm. been unhappy and thought, gee, I wish I'd done a paravertebral." So mm. uh, you get better with judgment yeah. uh, or your judgment gets better the more of these cases you do, uh, particularly because the feedback is so so instantaneous. If you mm-hmm. get the catheter in the right spot and you give five mils of dilute local anesthetic, you know within five minutes mm-hmm. what the effect is. Very similar to a label ward epidural. Mm-hmm. The the nerves are very, uh, the nerves are not covered very much as they traverse the, uh, the paravertebral space. So mm-hmm. the local anesthetic molecules have very, very short distances to go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's that instant feedback almost uh, means that you can, Um, you can, uh, really assess how good your catheter is going to be. And, and that's probably one of the pitfalls is, is choosing to use a technique, which ends up in retrospect being the wrong technique. Mm. And over the time, I've, 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 I've erred to doing, I mean, a lot of people are moving from paravertibles to using erectospinase. And Mm. I'm actually going the other way. I, Mm. I, I I use mostly paravertibles, but then the the epidural is so good. You know, it was the very, it was the first regional anesthesia option for, broken ribs back in the day. Mm. I mean, before epidurals, the, the treatment of broken ribs was, was, was pretty barbaric. You know, yeah. they, they didn't really have a lot of, a lot of success if you look at the history mm. of this treatment. So mm. having said that though, there's nothing to stop you if you put in a proceed, if you put in a catheter and it does not work, the proof is in the pudding. So if mm. you put your catheter in and you think that's in a perfect position, but then you give five mils and nothing happens mm. and then five minutes later you give another five mils and nothing happens. Mm. If you just leave that catheter in and hope for the best, that then you're more likely to regret it, and, yeah. and you're mm. better off taking it out and either persisting with your systemic analgesia or trying mm. tr- either trying the same procedure again or moving to a different procedure mm. uh, from paravertebral to uh, to neuraxial or from paravertebral to erector spinae.
1: Mm. I have maybe one memorable patient who uh, we put in erector spinae, but unilateral rib fractures, and we tried an erector spinae block, no analgesia. Um, Took them back to the block room, put in a paravertebral block, block, some analgesia. But then by the end of the day, after the sort of single shot were off, you know, mm. we had to bring them back again. And so they ended up getting an epidural, which worked beautifully. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and you sort of look back on those cases and think, well, maybe if the erector spino failed, mm. should have just jumped straight to a thoracic epidural. So, yeah. Yeah.
2: The other way of looking at that case is you, if, if you want to start with the lowest risk option and then work your way up, maybe that's also, there's some merit in that in certain patients.
1: And I was going to ask you that. So where, uh, you know, you're operating from a position of working in a very well resourced tertiary hospital. Any particular tips for people performing these procedures in maybe a less well resourced environment?
2: Yeah. It's a, it's a good question. And it's something that I haven't thought much about, uh, Because we, you know, because we are so in such a luxurious position at my hospital. If you have to choose between a a technique that you're comfortable with and a technique that's Mm. new and you don't do these procedures very frequently there's really nothing wrong with putting in a thoracic epidural. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Uh, and so if paravertebral seem really, really scary and erectospinase seem really new and you don't know how to turn the ultrasound machine on, mm. there's nothing wrong with putting a thoracic epidural in because as we spoke about before, this is a patient who has rib fractures, mm. has already tried systemic analgesia and failed and is at risk of respiratory morbidity. Mm. So yes, there is morbidity associated with with. Neuraxial, but I find that it's not the risk that dissuades people. It's more, it's not the risk benefit. It's the cost benefit. Mm. And I'm not talking monetary cost. I'm talking cost in terms of effort and, mm. and mucking around and looking after the mm. epidural and maybe managing anticoagulation or hypotension mm. that ensues. Yes. It's that cost benefit that is, that is, um, that serves as a disincentive a lot of the time mm. rather That's than the true. risk benefit. Yeah. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with sticking with what you know, uh, Uh, so long as the patient is in that category uh, where Mm -hmm. the systemic analgesia is just not cutting the mustard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: That's fair enough. Now, Anthony, you mentioned before that one of the things you need to ensure before you're doing a regional technique on these patients is that you can manage any of the complications for ward patients, not necessarily ICU patients. Where do you typically perform the blocks? Do you take them to theatre, or do you take them to a block room? What is your what's your usual practice?
2: So this will be dependent on what facilities you have. At yeah. at at my hospital, we have a block room, mm-hmm. and we would routinely bring all of our patients from the ward to the theatre complex and do the procedure in our in our block room. Mm-hmm. Uh, if someone is in the emergency department or the ICU I would go there yeah uh, but i don't I don't think it's a good idea to do these sorts of procedures on a on a ward patient on the ward no
0: I completely agree uh, i
2: I guess you could set it up so you have a roving team that could go I've never heard of that happening it no. wouldn't be impossible but it's certainly not what what we do at my hospital
0: no and it's I certainly haven't heard of that happening at other facilities either purely because I just don't think you have the capacity to manage airway um, airway issues and sort of loss of consciousness, loss of respiratory drive in these patients. So I think that's fair
2: enough. And we are managing things that don't happen very frequently. So yeah. on the face of it, it may seem like a very a very conservative or, or very uh, risk-averse um, technique, uh, yeah. risk-averse philosophy, but but that's because we're managing things that are by definition, you know, one in 100, one yeah. in 200. If you do 100 or 200 paravertebrals, over your career then you'll definitely see one of them you just don't know which patient will yeah, be getting these complications mm, yeah
0: exactly and no one wants to play russian roulette with um with ideally their patients. not no now anthony any particularly memorable ca- uh, cases that you have um, have seen in your practice of regional anesthesia for t- uh, for chest trauma
2: the most memorable one for me i guess would be uh, would I, I had one patient who had a peripheral catheter get infected on day five or so. Uh, so mm-hmm. that kind of keeps in my mind how important sterility is. Mm-hmm. This is a chap who also, his drips got infected as well. And mm-hmm. some people that is more prone to infections than others, diabetics mm-hmm. and whatnot. So that one sticks out in me as probably the worst uh, complication that I've personally had. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these infections, you take the catheter out, you give a course of antibiotics and, and they come good. It's very rare that the that the infection becomes severe. Yeah. Uh, and that's what happened on this occasion. But that highlights also how important it is the daily review of the catheter is. Mm. Um, the other one that sticks out in my mind is one case that I wasn't personally involved in, but it was a case that happened at my hospital where a patient had broken ribs. And in the process of sitting them up and getting them ready, they actually developed a pneumothorax oh, wow. before the needle was actually oh, geez. going in.
0: Oh, geez. And so
2: that was a little bit uh, hairy because the patient was very obese and, mm. uh, and the anaesthetist involved had to, had to negotiate putting in a, an ICC. Uh, and once again, these are, these are rare things, but they happen when you do a lot of procedures. And mm. if you've got to remember that the broken ribs, you've got jagged edges, edges of bone that are right next to the pleura. If you start moving a patient around on this occasion and just sort of mm. put a little, put a little rip in the pleura, yeah. I guess it's also possible this patient had an undiagnosed pneumothorax from their trauma They just, just happened to kind of yeah. come come to fruition at that point in time. Yeah, uh,
0: like a slow leak, so to speak.
2: Perhaps, yeah. yeah. So that's the other thing I, I didn't mention before. But we we have a ICC kit in our block room, mm. uh, which is also very close to our trauma theatre. Mm. So uh, it serves two purposes there. But mm. um, uh, that was a very hairbrain, um, well, a very hairy uh, situation, and mm. probably probably yeah. the most extreme side effect or complication that comes to mind for me yeah, at our hospital. Mean,
0: mm quite scary.
1: It's been a great chat about regional anaesthesia for uh, blunt chest trauma, which is one of my interest areas as well, so we've been noting out on that. Um, but every week at the end of the Deep Breaths podcast, we finish with a question, what have we learnt this week in anaesthesia? So Anthony, what have you learnt this week? Uh,
2: I I haven't learned much about anaesthesia this week, to be honest. I'm just getting ready to examine the primary candidates, so I've been learning all the secrets of the primary exam.
1: So, and what uh, can you tell us? I can't tell you anything while the microphone's
2: on, Kate, so uh, we might meet up afterwards and I'll fill you in. Excellent. So useful, so useful. Andrew, Fantastic. the primary. Fantastic. That's great. Thank you very much.
1: Look, thank you so much for your time, Anthony.
2: That's okay. Thanks for, thanks for having me.
0: Well, it's been a really interesting discussion on today's episode of Deep Breaths. As always, you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We'd love it if you spread the word to follow us on your favorite podcast platform and even review us.
1: And if you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee or you think you would be a great interviewee, please feel free to let us know.
0: Thanks for listening. And we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.